Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the FOSS podcast. Today, I'm joined by two authors whose work appears in the new short story collection, Take Us to a Better Place. This book was published by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and created in collaboration with FOSS's content studio, Melcher Media, which is known for producing award-winning books, videos, and digital media. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has a vision of a national culture of health, one that provides everyone in America with a fair and just opportunity for health and well-being. And so they decided to approach a diverse group of 10 fiction writers and ask them to envision what a culture of health might look like and how we as a country can get there. The result is a fantastic group of stories that's meant to spark meaningful conversation and is a great example of how we can use stories as tools to support real-world progress. Today's guests, Karen Lord and Martha Wells, contributed two of my favorite stories in the collection. Karen is a Barbadian author and sociologist whose work is deeply influenced by her life on a small island. Her debut novel, Redemption in Indigo, released in 2010, won five literary awards and was nominated for the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. Her latest book, Unraveling, was published in June 2019. Martha Wells has been a prolific and beloved author of science fiction and fantasy for nearly three decades. A New York Times bestselling author and winner of two Hugo Awards, two Nebula Awards, and a Locus Award, Martha is perhaps best known for her ongoing series, The Murderbot Diaries. I'm so pleased to welcome Karen Lord and Martha Wells to the Future of Storytelling podcast. Karen Lord, Martha Wells, it's such a delight to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. This is such an interesting opportunity to speak to you both based around this anthology that you participated in called Take Us to a Better Place Stories that was a project initiated by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So first of all, let me ask you, do you both normally work in short stories and particularly in anthologies, or is this something kind of novel for you? It's pretty novel for me. I've written a few short stories, but I'm mostly a novelist. I have a short story coming out in Uncanny Magazine next month, and it took me about a year to write. My writing style is just doesn't work with it for me. And how about you, Karen? Like Martha, I, I mainly think of myself as a novelist, but I have, for one reason or another, been drawn more and more to short fiction um, over the past few years. So maybe I'm getting closer to a middle ground now, and I, and I can't quite call myself just a novelist. It's such a unique project in that this foundation, which is committed to a culture of health throughout the United States, thought to create an anthology of stories working with writers who are known for their future fiction to imagine a, a world that would have positive health outcomes, a healthier culture, a culture of health. Can you talk a bit about what that's like as a fiction writer who's used to thinking about the future what it was like to do it here with, with a goal of trying to imagine a positive impact for our culture of health. I think it was fascinating because, 
you have a sense of, you could say, responsibility because the story is meant to, to both educate and inspire. You're, you're really trying to, to find ways to get your readership to, as you say, empathize with the protagonist with what's happening, to feel as if it could happen to them, to think about, you know, you know putting themselves in, in, the, in the protagonist's shoes. And you get, you get all kinds of um, sort of mini challenges along the way, structuring a story like that. And sometimes if it's just your own story, you can, you can kind of let it go where you like. But this one had um, certain goals, so you had to like rein it in. And I, and I actually enjoyed that challenge, yes. I'm pretty good at imagining worst-case scenarios. So that's actually where I went with my story. I think it's important, so important to try to get people to, you know, look at what we have now and see how, where it could end up, to see how good things could be and to see how bad things could be if we don't intervene at this point. And what are some of the techniques that, that you employ to get people to be able to feel, um, to connect to the story, to have some sort of empathy to characters? I think that's just the, you know, the basic of writing is really trying to, the point of view and, and try to really get deep into the character's point of view and make people think about how you would feel in that situation that the character's in. And for me, I, I kind of tried a, a parallel approach where on the one hand, you're talking global stakes in the pandemic, but on the other hand, you're talking personal stakes as well. So it was a, it was a question of creating a plot or a milieu where both could be seen and then sort of straddling the middle, which was absolutely fascinating to me, is that a doctor has to have both personal and global stakes in mind and weigh them with a certain amount of ethics. So let's talk about that. Karen, you, your story really deals with a pandemic, and you wrote it well before COVID-19 hit the world. I was amazed you know, rereading it to see how many details that you included in the story that seem now so prescient, whether that was, you know, specific discussion of, of PPE, protective personal protective equipment for the medical professionals, or something as subtle as when in quarantine, a, a young girl having to study virtually through the, the intranet and, and socialize, little things like that, which made it so now seem so familiar, but also like, again, the word that comes to mind is prescient. Like, how do you feel now seeing what's happened in the world about the story you wrote before global pandemic? Well, I, first, I really do have to shout out so many of my colleagues and people who I admire have been writing this trope for years and, and done it amazingly. But for myself, it, it does give me a feeling of, well, shall I say cautious satisfaction because it means I did my research properly that I, I did get the pieces together in a way that looked authentic to the point where it looks real now. There's an almost theological kind of flavor to the, to the idea that your words can call reality into being. And um, there have been a few times when I have hesitated to write things because I almost feel like, you know, it, it feels too immediate, it feels too real, and it's not something I want to come to pass. We speak these words, we write these words, and it's a way of trying to call a new reality into being. And at least I can say that there's a happy ending, that there's a way through, that there's a path to a resolution. And, um, and I think that's the best thing you can try to write when you're writing about problems is to at least see the possibilities that are there, even if the protagonist makes bad choices, but at least the avenues need to be there and open that the reader can see what's, what's, um, what's available. In one long, slow second, Colin's eyes realized the log was not a log, but a body. His blood ran hot, cold, 
electric, spurring him at top speed to grab the back of his daughter's shirt and shorts, snatching her away from the air that surrounded the corpse. Holding her tightly, he raced into the water and triple baptized her with mindless instinct, as if contagion could be washed from her skin and flushed from her lungs with a dose of drowning. Martha, your story also deals with a, with a topic, even though it's, it's a little further in, in a way in the future, it deals very much with a topic that's very current today, which is you know, healthcare and access to healthcare, right? Obamacare is uh, being challenged again in the courts. And as it is, we see with COVID that there's been a tremendous imbalance in the health outcomes for people in this country, often along racial lines and, and also socioeconomic lines. Can you tell me a little bit about or talk a little bit about why you chose that as a topic for, for your story? Well, it was coming up very much when I wrote the story. There was the threat of losing Obamacare back then, too. The story is about basically a person that their body was altered drastically for a purpose, and then they were abandoned, and the alterations have needed to be upgraded, and they need improvements, and it's causing not only physical distress, but mental distress, and it's pushed this person to a point where they've lost control of themselves and um, have started to attack other people. You see so many incidences, uh, I mean, the idea of uh, stopping Obamacare, so many people are not going to be able to pay for medical treatments that are already in progress and what that's going to do to people and their families. It's just a really horrifying prospect. So maybe the story is my way of dealing with that a little bit. Safety. She had to make sure they were secure up here before she command-sealed everything. She called Sully and asked them to take a group to search the module. Okay, uh, what are we searching for? Sully replied, that was a good question. Reluctant to admit what she thought was happening out loud, Jixie said slowly, do a rescue search. There was a long silence. So you're both considered authors who write what's called speculative fiction. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about sort of the distinction between speculative fiction future fiction, science fiction. I think these terms get sometimes interchanged. Which one do you associate with and, and why and how are they different? I think from, from my point of view, speculative, as you say, it's a nice umbrella term and it's especially useful if you have a work that blends aspects of both, say, fantasy and horror, fantasy and science fiction. So if it's not fitting neatly into one of the subgenres, speculative is, is, a, is a good box to put it in. But for me, coming from, from my particular region, it really is about the fact that so much of our literature doesn't respect the, the boundaries of the subgenres, so speculative is the easiest thing to call it. And for our listener, when you say our literature... <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I am, I am speaking to you from Barbados. My region, my, my area is the Caribbean, yes. And of course, your story also takes place on an island. So I wonder how you... Can you talk a little bit about how... Uh, your personal experience influenced your story? <laughs> this is a very obvious thing, but I, I, I do want to mention it. So the, the island in the story is called Pelican Island. Barbados had an island called Pelican Island, which was the quarantine island. I say had because they 
they, they joined it to the mainland. It was just a small island um, off, off Bridgetown, off the capital. So they kind of did some filling in and so forth. So now when people talk about going to Pelican Island, there's, there's nothing to cross. You just drive over. <laughs> but that was a definite nod to here's an island with a, a quarantine history, a quarantine pedigree, as it were. But then there were other aspects like considering um, what it is to be concerned about your supply chains getting disrupted if something happens um, globally. Then there's this, um, I guess, the positive aspect of living in an island is that some some parts of community health become, I don't want to say easier, but in a way more natural because you can have some of your health professionals embedded in the communities that they're serving. It doesn't translate to the rural setting because rural settings tend to have um, very large distances between and can't be covered in the same way. So there were ways in which um, I already had an optimal setup to demonstrate the kind of community healthcare that I wanted to to write about. Do you feel that there is good inspiration from what's happening in Barbados already in terms of a culture of health? I am hoping so, but you know, as I just said to you before, I'm scared of what my words may bring into reality. Um, what <laughs> what we are finding right now is that um, we have no community spread at the moment. Um, we've been very careful with track and trace and, and suppressing the clusters that occurred. And of course, this is playing havoc with the tourism industry, which is already kind of in deep trouble globally. But um, it allows us to at least maintain a local economy that's reasonably flourishing because we don't have to be in lockdown. So I have been spending my time, as any good writer would, observing closely, making notes, and, and just seeing how do we handle this economically and still maintain our health? I'm very curious where you get inspiration. I mean, the idea of creating stories out of out of thin air, it seems that there's always some research, right? Like you're not, speculative fiction is still grounded in some things that are plausible or, or in technologies that are emerging. Or Martha, can you talk a little bit about where you get some of your inspiration? Uh, just from all over. Uh, I've been a science fiction and fantasy reader since I was very little, since I could first read, basically. Um, it's really hard for me to pinpoint where an idea comes from or where an influence comes from. I've noticed, especially lately, when it seems like there's been a lot of kind of bringing back of old material to be remade into new movies and that kind of thing. It's like I'll see something and realize, well, I saw that when I was a kid and and it was an influence on me. It it made me think about things in this way and it made me kind of construct stuff in this way but it was so long ago I've actually for, I've actually forgotten it so that's always interesting to me how those influ- how kind of those inspirations get kind of buried in with everything else and you don't really and it's really hard at least for me to kind of go back and pinpoint them I mean, I think that goes back to that idea that maybe there is sort of nothing new, <laughs> that, 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 that everything is, is some form of regurgitation of something that was done before. I, I studied with a professor in college, Harold Bloom, and he wrote a book called The Anxiety of Influence and uh, suggests that all great poets have to struggle with their, the father poets or the mother poets who influence them, basically whose work is playing through in their subconscious. And in the end, all they can kind of hope for is some small swerve off of the things that came before. <laughs> the term that someone introduced me to is, you, your, your present work is always in conversation with the, the past canon. And, and I do like that very much because you, you can still push forward. You can still look for something new, but there's a sense in which you are aware of what came before you and you're still 
continuing a, a thread of the of the conversation, a thread of the overarching story, and bringing it forward into the future, ready to to toss it to the, to the next generation. Um, and a lot of people are very much influenced by American media and and of course publications and so forth. So we do sometimes have um, workshops of young writers where the first thing they're doing is a a complete imitation of of some fantasy trope that is not just the trope they're taking. They're just they're just like gathered up everything wholesale. And then you have to say to them, stop and think about what's influencing you where you are. What about the tales your grandmother told you? What about the urban legends you heard on the schoolyard? And when they begin to understand that it's not just books and movies that give you your ideas, that it's the life you're living and it's everything you're hearing and it's, you know, waiting at the bus stop and hearing a funny conversation behind you. I think some people just sort of like open them and go, oh, wow, you know, I don't have to write the same thing that's being written before. Lots of what I've studied kind of makes its way into a story. Lots of thought experiments of, of what if, you know, take, take this dry economic theory, take this um, theological concept, put it into something where it actually begins to affect people or upset people or cause them to have to make decisions. And, and then you have something completely fresh. Or you think it is until you realize that somebody else wrote about it back in 18 whatever. But it's but it's a good start. Do you think today writing stories, whether they're short or, or longer form, still have the resonance with people? Do words have the power to change the world still? Absolutely. And and I go further. People sometimes when they're talking about literature, they're only thinking about the words on the page. I want people to remember that an audiobook is still a book. A game is still a story. A television series is still a story. And to me, a story is, is two things. It's not just the author who puts the words in place. It's also the reader who takes the words up. And in some ways, a well-trained author is only part of the equation. A well-trained reader is where the magic can really occur. When you begin to acquire a familiarity of, of certain shapes of story and, and understand to, a, to a, another level what the author is playing with, it can open up some amazing things to you, a, a deeper level of appreciation perhaps. So um, I, I always do encourage people that to look at reading not just as a hobby, but a hobby that can have almost nerd level layers to it. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And I also think part of the power of words is also comforting people and allowing you to kind of uh, just give you a place for your brain and your imagination to rest when your reality is so stressful the way it is now in the in the onslaught of social media and just trying to survive and figure out what you're going to do and when all these things are happening and things are changing uh, so quickly, having that place of comfort where you can kind of go into that world and feel safe. I play a game on uh, over Zoom weekly, an RPG with some friends, and we make a joke about how this RPG where everything, all these monsters are trying to kill us, this feels so much safer <laughs> and easier to navigate than the real world sometimes. It's like there's been an inversion where it used to be that, that life was sort of boring and, and the games or the stories were the place of excitement. Now the, the yeah. world's too exciting <laughs> and, and stories can be a place to feel some, some calm. For our listener, we should note that um, Take Us to a Better Place, this wonderful anthology of stories, is available as an ebook for free as a download 
people can get that at Amazon or Barnes and Noble and Apple Books, and that there's also a free audio version um, available on Apple Books and one that's forthcoming from Audible. So I can tell you that I've so enjoyed reading this, and I'm sure that that many many of our listeners will uh, be excited to be able to get a free copy. And since we're on this, <laughs> we might also note that if anyone wants to go to rwjf.org backslash fiction, there is also a reader's guide there. There are questions and uh, interesting provocations for each of the stories if you wanted to uh, share it with a reading group, for example. So let me ask you about the future of storytelling in your humble opinions. What, what I'm finding particularly powerful about story right now is that we came up in a system which drew some very specific lines between things. When I was at school, I was interested both in stories and in science, and I was being told I had to pick one or the other because you couldn't go, you couldn't like, you know, cross the streams as it were. And um, I ended up going to University of Toronto, where I found an amazing um, specialist program called History of Science and Technology, and I was like, aha, I cracked the code. So I was able to straddle it then, but um, coming up in a system where you separate the two so quickly, I began to realize that some people were becoming very specialized in a very particular fields and not able to see applications or, or crossover issues that belong to other fields. One of the powerful things about story is that story puts it all into a context, a real-world context thought experiment that said, okay, here's your economic issue, but have you considered this is what happens when you add in the health data, this is what happens when you add in the psychological approach and the sociological response and, and, and the technologies that are available, and then people see a bigger picture and they're like, oh, wow. So if there's one thing I would love to see the future storytelling do is to is to open up a different type of education where it says, okay, fine, you're specializing, this is your lane, this is your box, but now this is the area where you need to become a generalist and the story is gonna show the way for you. This is how you acknowledge all the other specializations happening and what they're producing and put them, fit them into the full picture so that you're really able to, to, um, to dictate policy in a way that works as opposed to being too, too specialized and, and not at all applicable. So I, I do have a lot of different areas that I do overlap, and that's my bias, as it were. That's why I think more people can benefit from that kind of approach in education. So there's a lovely afterword in Take Us to a Better Place that's written by Michael Painter and Judy Struve from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And they said in that afterwards, and I quote this, we must urgently work together to build a future where everyone in the United States regardless of who they are or where they live, has a fair and just opportunity to live their healthiest life possible. We're just in the middle still of this COVID crisis, and it's a time for us to really think about a reimagining of the life we want to come out of from this period of quarantine. And I just wondered if you each could share with me some speculative fictions uh, hope, author's hope for what some of the seeds that might grow now out of this period that would lead us to a more healthy culture, a more healthy world. Well, I would hope people would realize how much their individual actions affect other people. I think that would take us forward to positive developments. And it would be nice to have positive developments um, happen, <laughs> whatever they were. <laughs> I'll take anything right about now. 
Um, my view is, is similar but slightly cynical in the sense that um, sometimes I find you need to have um, two or three reasons for people to do the best possible thing as opposed to you know, kind of catering to what you hope are their better feelings or their better angels. And one of the things that I find remarkable is that um, as, as painful as this pandemic has been on, a, on an individual basis because of the illnesses and the death, of the um, incapacity and the death and so forth, it's also been deeply, deeply inefficient. And for those people who don't connect emotionally, I would want them to just look at how we are running our countries, how we are running the world and say, you know, we could be a lot more efficient if we, did, if we put certain things in place. So I would say to people, um, look, at, look at how things are being run. Who is it benefiting? How long will it benefit them from? If it's just going to benefit a, a fraction of a 1% for their lifetimes and not even to their grandchildren's lifetimes, we're doing something very wrong. We need to, to, to change course and to, and to find some new approaches. One of the things that is a positive out of this is the conversations about the kind of culture we want to have as a society, as as people. Um, obviously, a lot of that is being discussed, uh, whether it's in areas of you know, racial and social justice and also just you know, what kind of society we want to live in. Um, but all that being said, I think that a collection like the two that you so beautifully contributed to, Take Us to a Better Place, is exactly the kind of stories that would provoke the kind of conversations that we should be having right now. I just want to thank you both so much for joining me today and for your contribution to this beautiful anthology. And I hope that we will get a chance to do and share more stories together. Well, thank you. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Karen Lord and Martha Wells as much as I did. If you'd like to learn more about either of them, or would like to get a free copy of Take Us to a Better Place, I highly recommend that you visit the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation website at rwjf.org fiction, where you can download a copy in English or Spanish or get the audiobook edition. There's also an accompanying conversation guide, which can be a very useful tool if you decide to share the collection with your book club. You can also find the link for your free copy of the book in this episode's description. Thank you to our ever-talented production partner, Charts and Leisure, and a special thanks to you, our listener. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, give us a review, and share it with a friend. We'll see you in a couple of weeks for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, stay safe, be strong, and story on. <laughs>